watching all movies with Rebecca and Jason. Are you gonna love them or hate them? Here, Here comes, comes the binge. binge. Hey everybody, welcome to The Binge, in which a couple of homos view the latest movie theater releases. I'm Jason Leroy. And I'm Rebecca Larte, and we have three movies for you this week. Little, Amazing Grace, and Peter Liu. And as always, we're going to rate these movies on a three-tiered scale, with Binge It being our highest rating. Consume in moderation means it's okay, but it's kind of meh. And send it back means... Life is too short for that mess. Jason, what's up with you? Well, thanks for asking. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now, the San Francisco Film Festival, or SF Film for short, is underway. And uh, the other night I saw uh, a film that is technically also opening this weekend. Um, they, they, they got a really uh, aggressive, competitive one-day lead on it Whoa. Uh, by showing it the night before. Uh, it's a new A24 film called High Life. Oh, the one with um, Robert Pattinson. The very same. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you have that Google alert set for any of your Pat's <laughs> movies, and your forum always tells you. So yes, I knew you'd be on top of this one. <laughs> it's written and directed by Claire Denis, uh, and she was in town for a mm. tribute Q&A prior to a screening of the film over at the lovely Victoria Theater. And, uh, and this is a movie that played at TIFF last year that I missed. And dong. I, uh, yeah, it was, yeah, not a ding, but a dong. And I had a sense that like it was okay that I missed it I just felt like it was not going to be for me Mm. and I watched it and I was right oh you know yourself so well I really do um know thyself uh, especially when it comes to film festivals and what you spend your time watching Mm. uh boy oh boy did I not like it wow and I was even drinking uh, <laughs> normally, if I'm drinking and I watch some like impossible movie, I'll be like, oh, this is good. <laughs> um, if it gives me any sort of emotional connection at all, the drinking, of course, just heightens that. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, oh, mm-hmm. my God, it's so good. Um, but I did not care for it. Um, it's and, and then I just kind of have to be honest with myself and admit that I have not cared for like any of Claire Denise films. Interesting. And I want to love her, you know, she's French. She's a woman. She's French. She's a woman. Yeah. I mean, all four of those points, I just were rattling around in my mind the Mm -hmm. whole time. Um, But, and I was like, I was wondering if I was crazy, but I went and saw it with my friend Paul, and he had a similarly sort of nonplussed reaction to it. And then Alexa, a friend of the show, Mm -hmm. Paul, not friend of the show. Yeah, exactly. Paul has not yet been on the show. Alexa has, and she was also there, and she was like, oh, bleh. Um, afterward and so it's it's it looks and feels like it should be this really insane sort of like this head trip sci-fi movie so this is Robert Pattinson in space with with Juliette Binoche oh right she's like the doctor and and Andre Benjamin okay alias Andre 3000 3000 Um, and so uh, yeah and, and, and she's playing some sort of doctor who has this spaceship full of people she's more or less testing is like some sort of almost like sexual subjects for some research to attempt to maybe procreate after maybe the earth has gone away and they're trying to, you know, start a new, the movie is, it's definitely a movie that doesn't tell you anything, but mm. doesn't show you that much either. <laughs> um, and what it does show you is like very nonlinear and uh, is very um, minimalist and, and super, super abstract. And you just kind of generally have no idea what's happening at any point in the movie. Mm. Um, there is a horrifically brutal sexual assault scene that feels like something you'd watch in a Gaspar Noe film. Uh, and uh, there is, there, there is. It, so she is still French, and she is still French. Okay. Yes. So uh-huh. that's that. That still checks that out. Tracks. Yeah. 
And it's like the acting is good. The photography is great. It looks great. It sounds great. Uh, but like there's just nothing there about the movie itself to commend it. Um, and I just don't know what I sat through. I'm super unclear on it. And uh, so I am once again, this falls under the category of movies where I'm just mystified mm. by the otherwise generally positive reaction to it. Oh, I've heard some I've read some uh, highlights that were like. Even Claire Denis doesn't know what a high life is about. Right. Um, right. Which people were like, that's great. I'm like, is it? Oh, really? Um, I feel like someone should yeah, be driving. Like, yeah. I feel like, you know, with, with, and, and this might be a super like old fashioned way of looking at it, but it feels like, you know, with art, the artist should know some, should have some sense of purpose. And I'm mm-hmm. sure that might be a very American way of looking at it. Um, but it's sort of like, if it's just a bunch of open ended imagery, um, and you know, then I just don't know. I just don't know what we're doing here. So <laughs> I was, it, it falls. Yeah, it fell. It falls into my, my increasingly crowded area of what are we doing here? Um, that's what music videos are for. That is what music videos are for. Or just like an install, just like a visual installation mm-hmm, in like a, mm-hmm. in like a modern art museum. Not in a movie theater. Not in a fucking movie theater. Um, it, I mean, I, I saw the trailer before seeing Gloria Bell and it, and you know, it definitely had a atmospheric and mm. I'm not saying that because it's space right. um, you know unsettling but beautiful and and it seemed like it was going to have like a thriller twist to it and it's it's kind of a bummer to see that 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 is not necessarily the case yeah and then the next day um, I was at a uh, going away party for a publicist friend uh, who I've been working with for as long as I've been doing the film scene here in San Francisco um, and uh, and I ran into the publicist who was handling high life there like you want to say High Rise, which was that weird Tom Hiddleston mm. movie from a few years back. That one um, had a purpose. That one did have a purpose. <laughs> um, wasn't great, but it had one. No, but yeah, it was, it was clear. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, the publicist asked me like, so did you like it? And I was like, mm, I wouldn't say that I did. And she's like, no, no one does. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. Is I, that a thing? Um, you don't get to pick what movies you are publicist for. It's just by... It's by, like, account. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah, the publicist handles A24, who I was mm-hmm. speaking with. Uh, so, yeah, it was um, a bit of a downer, but there's lots more to see um, mm. this festival. I'm seeing... Um, tonight, I'm seeing Wild Rose. Later this week, I'm seeing Booksmart, which is what I'm super excited for, which is Olivia Wilde's uh, film that she directed. Oh, right. Um, that, oh, right. That mm-hmm. looks incredible. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing The Farewell, which is starring Aquafina in a more dramatic role. Are you still on the fence about her? Um, I mean, I wouldn't say that I... I mean, I don't have a problem with her, per se. I just didn't think that she was that funny in Crazy Rich Asians. I thought okay. that I still thought she was more obnoxious than funny. If I have the time, I'm going to try to find that clip and cut it in here. And, <laughs> but only if I have the time and it is contradictory to what you're saying now. Sure. Otherwise, it's to continue the I, show. I feel like that's what I said. I, just feel, <laughs> I, I feel like my position on her, has uh, my, my initial position on her when I first heard about her was that I was annoyed that I had to learn someone's name as Aquafina and then remember it and then refer to them by that name. Because mm. it's so hard to remember. I thought it took a lot of chutzpah to be like starting out and be like i will have the world call me aquafina <laughs> one name it's a joke uh you know deal with it so i have been irritated by the hubris of that from the get-go and uh and then but you know I, yeah I, I i liked her on snl mm, uh, i thought yeah. she i thought she was really funny on snl so and uh, i am in no way opposed to her <laughs> she just kind of bugs a little so but i'm excited to see her in this role um i'm seeing a film called hala on friday night 
And uh, yeah, so I'm looking forward to uh, to watching more movies at SF Film um, this coming week, and then possibly discussing them on this show as recently as uh, next week. Next week. Mm-hmm. So anyway, what's up with you, Rebecca? Um, I am preparing myself to enter next weekend uh, for my first time the world of people who have gone to Coachella. I don't think I knew this. That I'm going to Coachella next weekend? Did I know this? I don't think I knew this. I thought we talked about this when, when, when I got the tickets. Oh, man. I don't know. Well, please go on. Um, yeah, I mean, it's something I never thought I would do. No. Um, and I'm doing it, and I'm excited. I'm excited because I only know a few of the artists, so I don't feel that pressure that I felt in other music festivals to mm. be like, I have to be here at this time and there that time, and I want to see this and I want to see that. I feel like I'm just going to kind of take it easy and see what I see and like not not get too stressed out about it. Um, I think part of why I wanted to go was a... A sense of FOMO that I know I won't be able to recapture uh, from missing Beyonce because hmm. um, she won't be there. But right. I will get to see the uh, Pyramid stage. Uh, I guess they have it back up as an art installation this year. They, so, they resurrected that stage mm-hmm. just so people can like revisit it and yeah. just feel feel the greatness lingering around it. Mm-hmm. Well, at least she has that documentary coming out. That is true. So you can revisit it there. Best, when I get when I go back to my hotel room, I'll right. watch that and then go back <laughs> the next day. So yeah, I mean, expect. Um, Expect me to come back uh, wearing a flower crown with wearing a flower crown, mm-hmm. um, uh, baked to the core, just <laughs> literally crispy, figuratively, right? Um, and uh, probably completely exhausted. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right, because all of your um, you'll be depleted, completely depleted, depleted. Um, what bands are you hoping to see? I do agree with you that it's definitely best to go when you don't have to feel like you are manically focused on running, ping-ponging back and forth from stage to stage to stage in just so timing so you don't miss anyone that you love. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Like, that's how I always, I do film, I do music festivals wrong. Um, like film festivals. Yeah, like, yeah, <laughs> do all the festivals wrong. Uh-huh. There's nothing festive about the way I do festivals. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so who are you excited to see? Uh, Ariana Grande. <gasps> oh my God. Childish Campino. Uh huh, sure. Ross from Friends. <laughs> so stupid. <laughs> um, yeah. Cool. Well, that's, that's, I want to see Blackpink, um, the K-pop band. Sure. Um, you know, recently... and, the good, and the good thing about seeing Ariana Grande and Charles Gambino is that no one else is going to try to see them. So yeah, it's so it'll, I should get it'll be really easy. It'll be yeah, easy. You can just, just mosey over at your own pace. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Um, no. Get there when I get there and get mm-hmm. right up front. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that's 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 that checks out. Mm-hmm. I'm happy. I think you've you've come up with a good plan. I there. figured it out. Yeah. It's a little so, stress. I will definitely have an update when I get back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now. How are you in terms of being in big crowds of people that you may want to judge? Okay, so uh, I I kind of went into this being like, I'm just going to be chill. Uh, I'm not going to pay attention to anybody else around me. And then what happened... <laughs> just this, the same way you drive. <laughs> what happened this week <laughs> um, is that the uh, co-worker or somebody in my company sent an email that was like very serious and needed like wanted a very quick response and was just it was really like demanding heavy email and then a bunch of people started working on it and then went to reply asking some questions so that they could get it done really fast and the person had set up an autoresponder that had a gif of coachella and was like hey mr email out partying in like out partying in coachella catch you when i get back like pieces emoji oh shit and i was like fuck it is a bunch of douchebags i i was right 
So that set me back emotionally a little oh bit, but God. I'm still prepared to just like hang out with the people that I'm going with and just bl- put blinders on. Put blinders on. Well, I mean, you never know who you're going to see at Coachella uh, in terms of who attends. But mm-hmm. um, but then but then they're all in the matching like you know sort of like flower crown and you know boho maxi skirt whatever. Like it's just hard. when I thought I had eliminated that. Um, oh, you're going to blend right in. I'm going to blend right in. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so pull them up. Pull out my summer clothes. I'm excited for you. <laughs> uh, right, and then there's the whole like, oh, the guy who heads up AEG donates to anti-gay causes all the time and. And he AEG runs Coachella, uh, common common refrain. Mm, um, I forgot for, about that. For those who want <laughs> to, uh, who who want to hate on Coachella, uh, and then I, I am one of my coworkers is a queer man of color who is an avowed Coachella super fan uh, mm-hmm. who goes every year and is incredibly combative with anyone who brings that point up, and um, finds another ways to equivocate on it to be mm. like, well, that's like saying blah 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 blah. Um, or like, well, AEG runs like half the concerts in this country, so you're gonna not go to any concerts. Um, mm. and, and I think what he does have right in his argument is the fact that people just want to hate Coachella. Yeah, yeah, like, it doesn't come from a place the, of like. No, it's not like this. It's not coming from this place of like being offended ethically and politically. Um, it's just like this helps me hate Coachella mm-hmm. because Coachella is easy to hate. Yeah. Um. So um. So I. I so I applaud you. <laughs> <laughs> for persevering mm-hmm. in the face of that and being like, you know what? I'm going to go. I'm going to go. I'm going to go. I'm just going to go. Uh, wow. Wow. Yeah. And you, you have some nice housing lined up? Uh, yeah, I'm definitely staying in a hotel. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not camping. <laughs> um, and I don't know. I heard I heard that from people who have gone that the it's, it's very well run, which is like, I don't know, very important um, in terms of when you have to like take shuttles and and kind of uh figure out how to survive in the desert um yeah. uh so that's good you know a lot of the messaging that comes with like your tickets is about uh there's like a whole booklet about how it's like a safe space people should be who they are and we're not going to tolerate any harassment and this is what you should mm-hmm. do and there are people around to talk to and we'll you know if something goes wrong and like no headdresses so <laughs> i feel like they've they're they're working on repairing that branding that we've yeah that they've been responsible for in the past sure yeah i mean the whole being well run thing takes a lot of the edge off because i know like whenever i go literally anywhere like roughly five minutes after i get there i start feeling intense anxiety about how i'm going to get back mm-hmm. yep same uh, so, the feeling of being stranded oof. um especially when you're like i'm going to be there all day will my phone be charged um you know they have like a very uh, they have this like statement about how water will always cost the same price it did at the first coachella which is like mm. two bucks I, f- I feel okay especially right. being out in the desert is like feeling stranded yeah it's like that's that's like the fundamental part of being in the desert mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right yeah feeling disconnected uh-huh yeah, yeah. so we'll see uh, i'll get back to you with a full report you going with a group uh, i'm going with two people i'm going with okay. my girlfriend and my friend uh from high school oh that's yeah. manageable yeah well fun and that's next weekend. That's next weekend. That's yeah. the same weekend that Scott and I will be doing Mothership. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. So which is we'll a, be... a drag a drag weekend uh, bus trip back and forth to Reno. So Rebecca and I will both have stories mm. um, after this upcoming Easter weekend. Right. Yes. Oh Cause, right. Because it's also that. Also happy Easter. Yeah. Happy Easter in advance, guys. So, first movie we're going to look at this week is Little. Jordan is a take-no-prisoners tech mogul who torments her long-suffering assistant April and the rest of her employees on a daily basis. She soon faces an unexpected threat to her personal life and career when she magically transforms into a 13-year-old version of herself right before a do-or-die presentation. 
Jordan will now need to rely on April more than ever if April is willing to stop treating Jordan like a 13-year-old girl who has an attitude problem. From my experience, it's really hard to stop treating someone um, who acts like a 13-year-old girl with an attitude problem like such. What are you saying? Uh, you, you heard me. Are we back on the? Are we back on the outs? We're back on the outs, guys. For <laughs> we've had a number of solicitations um, about our uh, our conversation on our first new episode a few weeks ago about us having had a falling out, and we'll just take this opportunity <laughs> to set the record straight. We we didn't actually have a falling no, out. No, we didn't have a no. falling out. We 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 genuinely genuinely were just not really mutually available for mm-hmm. like almost three months. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was all it was. That was it. <laughs> we're good. Yeah, we're mommy fine. Mommy and daddy aren't fighting. Uh-uh. Mommy and daddy are just fine. Thank you for your concern. And mommy and daddy love you all. And that bubbling level of animosity is like really <laughs> yeah, our convincing. Base, our baseline tension is what makes it work, guys. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't read too much into it. Mm-mm. It's just the way we are. Very bummed to not have seen this one yet. Hopefully this is one that I'll come back with a... And then I saw it next week. Yeah. Um, little. We have Issa Rae. Um, we have Regina Hall. Uh-huh. And Marseille Martin. Breakout star? Yeah. I like the question mark at the end of that. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't seen it, so I don't know. Breakout <laughs> meteor? Yeah. No, I mean Opposite? she she is uh, one of the stars of Blackish, mm-hmm. a show that I I've watched every episode of from the beginning. And um and now she is like this like fourteen year old mogul because with this movie, I believe at least the press narrative um, is that she has become like the youngest executive producer of a movie in history. What? How? What? Because she is executive producer of this movie. That this, is this amazing. Is her, this is her movie. She like has been shepherding it around for like four years or something since I guess she was 10. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know if she had, she's not credited as like for a story or screenplay or anything, but she, I think has been working on this from the jump. And so this is kind of like, she made this movie happen and she's 14. Tell me all about it. Well, uh, so you covered a lot of it in the summary. Mm, thank you. I'm going to do what I can. Uh, so, yeah, so it's it's sort of, it's it's not, it's not super, it's not the most successful comedy, um, but it is a great showcase for all three of its lead actresses. Mm. Um, this is the kind of movie that is just saved entirely by its performances. Um, unfortunately, we don't get Regina Hall for the entire movie, right? Um, uh, because she does revert back to her thirteen-year-old self, um, at the toward the end of the first act, and then we don't see her again until the very end. Uh, the movie is kind of like thirteen going on thirty, if it were thirty going on thirteen, mm-hmm. meets The Devil Wears Prada. So, because Regina Hall is playing this like sort of Miranda Priestly type character. Uh, who is just an over-the-top monster uh, boss who is running this like this this tech firm in Atlanta that like develops apps and stuff and she's we see her on the cover of many many fake magazines <laughs> um, extolling her virtues as like the great visionary of of tomorrow and um, but she is um, yeah a, just a rageaholic and Regina Hall has a ball playing this character it's it's the opposite of her character and support the girls. <laughs> <laughs> Tear down the ladies. Yes, yes. Whereas that character was endlessly um, supportive and sympathetic and deglammed. Um, this character is a glamazon bitch warrior um, who makes everyone hate her at every turn. Mm-hmm. Um, but she has fun playing the part. I'll say that. This is definitely Regina Hall playing to her more like broad comedy strengths. 
and, and just having a ball while doing it. Mm-hmm. Is it similar to her sort of like powerful character from uh, Girls Trip? Um, it was. It reminded me of that character a bit. And there's some of the same crew. There's some of the same creatives and producers working on this as worked on that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the screenplay was co-written by Tracy Oliver, who co-wrote that screenplay, mm-hmm. produced by Will Packer, who produced that. Um, so it felt a little bit like that character in the sense that, <clears throat> you know, it, it has a similar approach to making us think of her as a very successful person. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so, but aside from that, no, I mean, her character in, in, in Girl's Trip was meant to be this, like, this aspirational every woman mm. uh, with the perfect marriage and, you know, who is like, um, you know, a celebrity and trying to find ways to still be her authentic self. So this is this is more of like a caricature. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and yes, Issa Rae plays her assistant who is um, who is more the sort of like the aspiring character, you know, lives in some sort of like boho loft and. Uh, and Did you just roll your eyes at that. Uh, well, it's it, when they, when they when they set up there when they do like the um, the expository shots of Regina's giant like penthouse suite, and then they like cut across town and like Issa Rae sitting there. And this, yeah, I would say just like a really kind of like cliche looking like almost like nineties coffee house loft with like incense burning, and mm-hmm. she's like doodling in like a sketchbook. I'm like, all right, movie, I get it. <laughs> I I get the the binaries we're setting up. And Issa Rae plays this character like more or less exactly the same as the character of Issa on Insecure. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's and that's all the better uh, because like all her little like all her little mannerisms and quirks and like all of her like, you know, half swallowed words and her little like just nervous tics and self-deprecating thing like she does all of those in this character. And thank God she does because she's <laughs> she's she's the glue that holds the movie together because she's the only one who's in the whole thing. Mm hmm. Um, so anywho, uh, Regina Hall's character through a bizarre series of circumstances winds up waking up one morning, having reverted to her 13 year old self played by Marseille Martin. And, uh, and we open with, um, sort of a prologue flashback to, um, her character, uh, being to Marseille being tormented in junior high while she was trying to perform at some sort of talent show. So, uh, so it, it's, it's sort of a strange, the moral in this movie is a little murky, which is where part of how it doesn't totally succeed because essentially the movie is punishing, um, Jordan, I guess is the name. Yeah. They're punishing Jordan's character for being kind of like a big bitch to everyone. Um, and then the punishment is to make her remember that she used to suck, <laughs> uh, that like she was like a nerd who no one liked in junior high. And, um, and so it like forces her to face that again and to go back to being this like 13 year old girl who no one takes seriously and who everyone thought was a big nerd. And then she has to like be enrolled, uh, back into a junior high school, um, because, uh, through bizarre, through circumstances, um, <laughs> that the screenplay gives us in which like somehow some neighbor notices right away that there's now this like 13 year old girl wandering around, um, uh, Jordan's apartment and then child services come and they're like oh you need to go to school and Issa Rae is like covering for her so they enroll her in this junior high and so she gets to live out that particular nightmare of going back to junior mm. high as an adult trapped in a 13 year old's body which is like you're probably worst nightmare just, I mean I feel like it wouldn't be that bad right now. I feel like that would kind of be the ideal you're state like, I think I'd crush actually <laughs> <laughs> Ladies, <laughs> <laughs> we no, hope. that's we, here we, now. We, that wouldn't work. That wouldn't work. <laughs> I, that back. I heard it. I heard it. Uh, we got a homecoming king in our hands here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, college. <laughs> <laughs> 
uh although that 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 kind of awkward um you know sort of age play discomfort does play a role in this movie because um marseille as young jordan um still has adult jordan's sexual appetite (laughs) which is highly uncomfortable to watch there are like two separate scenes where she like very aggressively comes on to guys uh, who are like 35 um and um in in the, in, this, in the discomfort that you feel coming off the guys is very real <laughs> um so anywho she is you know sent back in you know, in her body to her 13 year old self as some sort of lesson um to remember that like basically that she used to be treated poorly and so she shouldn't treat others poorly which is like if that were just the lesson it'd be one thing although i still feel like it's a little weird to be like oh let's like let's take this like powerful female character and punish her for you know for not um you know for something that probably if she were a dude character would be overlooked uh Mm -hmm. she's definitely i mean she's they give her a lot of fairly over the top villainy in terms of the way she treats people like shit but they're still kind of like why are we singling out this female character and punishing her for Mm. for having the balls to um yeah to sort of like not be this like tiptoeing maternal uh person Mm. having the having the gumption to be a woman in control who is not maternal um but anywho that aside uh but then in the final stretch suddenly becomes about like be yourself uh and then that becomes like the message they're pushing where it's like i don't I'm not getting a be yourself message from literally anything that came before. And then the mm-hmm. final act is all about be yourself when her being herself is what got her into this in the first place. <laughs> uh, so it definitely is a little, it's a little unclear on what it's trying to say. Um, and you know, some gags work, some gags don't. Uh, and, uh, but you know, at the end of the day, like I said, all these three performances, uh, Marseille Martin has always been from the time that she was much younger when black, was first starting, had a, a way ahead of her years um mm-hmm. intensity yeah um which they always play for last in the show because her character diane is meant to be terrifying mm-hmm. um and so and she's i mean she's a very gifted uh young actress and, and yeah she can be very scary <laughs> and, she, and as i mentioned in those seduction scenes she can come on incredibly adult at times uh in ways that are unsettling yeah it seems like it would take like a special uh, a very special young actress uh or actor to be able to play that bold of an adult mm-hmm. uh, for a big part, portion of the movie, majority yeah. of the movie. Yeah, and that's kind of the movie has a bit of an identity crisis going on in several senses, um, both you know in the story and just in the movie at large. Uh, even the humor, the humor of the movie is kind of split down the middle between this kind of raunchy, suggestive, more adult humor, and then just like straight up like junior high YA. Um, gentle humor Mm. Uh, because you know once she's back in the junior high she you know can only make friends with the nerds because she looks like her old self again and now the popular kids want anything to do with her and uh, so and then it just becomes like you're at times you feel like you're watching it like and the kids are all really actually very young like they only cast like really young kids in this movie so uh, yeah so it feels like a kids movie and then suddenly you're watching this like raunchy adult movie and then back to a kids movie again so it's a little it's 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 uneven it's Mm. really uneven um so yeah but with that all said it's still fun to watch because the three of them are just brilliant actresses Mm -hmm. um speaking of powerful women um did we ever talk about uh what men want i still haven't seen it i saw it oh how was that uh please watch it (laughs) if for no other reason than for erica badu oh yeah I, i did hear she was very funny I need to watch it again. It is so funny. Um, she's hilarious. That's all I'm going to say. 
Um, so what are you giving this one? That's a consumer moderation. Mm, so I shouldn't go this weekend? This is like a great airplane movie for sure. Oh, like, right. This mm-hmm. is like definition, textbook, airplane comedy. Okay, let's see. When's my next flight? This would probably be on a flight in about a month and a half. <laughs> uh, maybe. Okay. Yeah, it might be available by then. Uh, little is rated PG-13 for some suggestive content. That brings us to our second movie this week, Amazing Grace. Singer Aretha Franklin performs gospel songs at the New Temple Missionary Baptist Church in Los Angeles in 1972. <laughs> I guess I do always talk first, huh? Is that, am I supposed to? I'm, I'm waiting. Um, I saw this one. Yay! <laughs> She's one for three this week, guys. Mm-hmm. But she saw one, the, an important one. Uh-huh. Um, I think that it would benefit our audience for us to talk about the backstory of this movie. Yeah. Because it completely changes the way you experience it. 100%. Yeah. Uh, so this is a movie that was originally uh, shot in, it was January 1972. And uh, Aretha Franklin was at the height of her fame. And she had decided to make this gospel album, Amazing Grace, as sort of an acknowledgement of her church roots. And also because there had been a bit of controversy, uh, especially around the black community, that maybe she had become too secular and that she had turned her back on the church. And uh, and so she decided to make this album. And then Warner Brothers, her label at the time, um, were like, well, let's make this a movie. And so they dispatched um, Sidney Pollack, a great director, great actor, um, to film it um, over the course of two nights at a church in Watts. I'm just going to add some flavor here. Um, that the the Amazing Grace album was against the advice of her label uh, originally, I think, because of that sort of divide. So she she kind of goes with her. Yeah, she went with her gut mm-hmm. and um and what she wanted to do, and uh and so Sidney Pollack shot this movie over the course of two nights and chronicled you know sort of every moment of um, these live sessions. Uh, it was um you know they had a, a packed church. Uh, it was full mainly of parishioners. Also, Mick Jagger and Charlie Watts <laughs> on the second night were there. Um, but to their credit, they don't they don't try to pull focus. <laughs> they are just there. The camera, of course, finds them mm-hmm. um, because they were like, well, of course, we need to show you that Mick Jagger is here. And he looks high. And he <laughs> looks a little stoned. It was 1972. I've seen, um, I've read something that like this was leading into um, Exile on Main Street. Mm. And so they felt like there somebody was trying to draw a connection between like the in, you know, the inspiration they got mm. at those sessions because Exile was like their most like gospel influenced mm-hmm. album, um, and the Rolling Stones were always obsessed with yeah. like you know American black soul music. So so the, nothing about it is surprising that Mick Jagger mm-hmm. was there. Um, and uh, and it, yeah, it's 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 uh, so they shot it and then it never came out until now. Um, initially, it was um, related to technical issues. Uh, related to the fact that Sidney Pollack did not know about syncing um, visual and audio. They didn't use the clapboard to um, to get things lined up. And so uh, so initially it was that. So that sort of put in purgatory for a very long time. Um, and then eventually um, this, this producer came along um, and sort of got all this material, all the footage, and started trying to work on it. And then a series of other issues arose. Um, there was a concern that Aretha's contract was that was was at large. No one knew where it was. Eventually, they found it. But even when they found it, Aretha herself was not crazy about the uh, the idea of this movie coming out. She um, was uh, kind of hardballing, wanting to sort of get some you know big payment out of it, um, and just kind of became increasingly adversarial with the team of people that were working to finish it. 
I remember very vividly the year I was at TIFF that this was supposed to be there. Oh, right. It was on, it was like, I guess, 2015. It was on the calendar a number of times. Uh, and because it was like premiering, it was supposed to premiere Telluride the week before. And then it was going to come to TIFF. It's a whole big thing. And um, and I remember like as they then they, they, you know, Aretha sued for like an emergency injunction to get it pulled from Telluride successfully. But then it wasn't automatically pulled from TIFF. So I mean, we all arrived in town thinking we were still going to see it. And then she yanked it from there, too. Uh, so and and now she's dead. <laughs> and now we can watch the movie because I guess the family had no issue with it. Like the family mm-hmm. were all too happy to re- to release it. Okay. Um, it was it seemed that it was just uh, she herself was what was standing in the way of this movie being out there in the world because she had a yeah just a long painful history with it and you know probably I guess she had been um, Warner Brothers was like oh this is going to be like your entry to the world of movie stardom um, when people see you on screen like this is going to turn you into a movie star in addition to you know already being a soul star. And um, so, and yeah, so she had a variety of reasons for shutting it down, but shut it down, she did. And, but now we finally have it. Mm-hmm. Anything to add? Um, a little bit. So um, I didn't know. Um, Amazing Grace is the number one selling gospel album of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, and allegedly, I think also her number one selling album. Oh, that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think. I think the part about what her her being told it was going to be her entry to stardom from Warner Brothers and then having them send a director um, with a bunch of guys that didn't know that you had to use clapboards mm-hmm. um, really paints a picture of why she had a problem with it. Right. Um, because and so I kind of was reading these things a little bit. I read one article that and got one part of the backstory and then I read another article um, towards the end of the movie. And, and I feel like when I was watching it, um, given that I have no history of of, of the Amazing Grace album, mm-hmm. um, and and no ex- not a lot not, no experience with gospel music, mm-hmm. um, this seemed amazing. Uh, it seemed like some people put this together and were able to capture footage of um, you know what was going on while this album was being recorded. Uh, there's like a speech from her father, and you get to see how much. Uh, how she performs moves people. So I was like, this is this is like found footage. I can't believe this, they finally put it together and it exists. Yeah. It's a holy grail. This has been a holy grail of of music cinema for the forty seven years it's been since it was filmed. Mm-hmm. And then and then reading the part about how it was sold um, kind of changes that a little bit because sure, you know, from where I'm coming from of this being like this is completely new to me. Um, this is cool that they have this is a lot different than thinking like. I grew up with this album. This is the best album um, mm. of a type of music that I enjoy and is important to me and my family or my community. I expect a really great movie from it. And I got this. So mm. I think that like, that's an experience that um, I don't know is conflicting about how to, how to take the movie, but the movie mm. exists now. Right. Um, and I, I think that maybe having a little bit of a preface of that might be helpful, but also I really enjoy the fact that this movie is nothing but clips of the film. I think one of the things that the 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 guy who produced it and, and I, I guess eventually, like you say, he directed it now, was in talks to get it from Sidney Pollock, and and the version that Pollock had wanted was had some talking heads right. and some interviews in it, right. which I think would have been terrible. The fact that this just exists uh, as the show yeah. um, makes it so moving. It's and... a very straightforward concert film. It's a concert film in the purest sense of the mm-hmm. term. Mm-hmm. Um, there's maybe two minutes of footage that's not just the concert. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and the rest of it is just very straightforward. Um, and, and we, so we should know Sidney Pollack passed away about maybe 10 years ago mm-hmm. or so. Right. And, uh, and so he's, he's not around to see this, this footage, um, see the light of day. You do see him in it. Yeah. I mean, um, that it, it, I can understand if you were feeling like Warner Brothers was sending you, mm-hmm. uh, this movie to change your career and you have these guys who you can see all of them in all of the movie, mm-hmm. um, it, they're like sitting right behind her. Like it's really very clear how amateurish it is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was. I mean, it was. At the end of the day, I feel it was. It was Warner's bungle um, mm-hmm. because Sidney Pollack was a proven, acclaimed filmmaker. Um, but I guess they just they didn't really think through the logistics. They were just like, "Oh, that sounds like a great idea. Let's send like our hottest young director to right. film one of the hottest young music stars in the world do this like this once in a lifetime concert." And, um, you know, and now we see the footage and the footage is great. Yeah. yeah. The footage is fantastic. Like they, they got a fantastic mix of, um, you know, Aretha close-ups of, um, footage of the choir, the choir director, who I believe is named Alexander Hamilton. He is. Yeah. He's still alive. He was there at the premiere. They showed the premiere at that, at that church in Watts. I was, I was feeling him. I was feeling what he was putting down. He was great. Um, and then my favorite part, honestly, is just the footage of the audience. Mm, really? Um, I loved looking out in the audience. I love looking out at the faces. I love looking out at the styles. I love just watching the reactions. Um, so I feel like they, 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 in terms of coverage, they got what they, what they were there to get. Mm-hmm. And as somebody who has listened to the amazing, I, I'm from very familiar with the Amazing Grace album um, over a number of years, and it did feel like, but not it's not one of those things where like oh I've been listening to it since I was I it, you know I'm not a child of the '70s and didn't listen to it back then. It's not like my favorite album. So I can just imagine wh- how much more impactful it would be to be, have l- listened all these years and wondered what it looked like when mm-hmm. it happened. And then suddenly here it is. Here's here's every second. Here's exactly what it looked like. All these things maybe you didn't know happened. Like whenever, you know, some like her father walks up and like towels off her forehead at mm-hmm. one point. Mm-hmm. Uh, or like there's one part where, you know, you see a, a basically someone else throws a towel at her um, and it like it lands near the camera mm-hmm. um, where they're filming her from low angle. Both of those happened during the last song and I think best song in the whole thing, which is Never Grow Old, mm-hmm. which is by far the most spine tingling thing, I think, in the whole in the whole show. And the part where um, with Reverend James Cleveland, her um, uh, mentor and mm-hmm. who uh, sort of directs this, um, breaks down crying while playing piano uh, during Amazing Grace. Like mm-hmm. to, to see that, I, I can't I can't imagine what it was like to see that not knowing that happened. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm, I'm curious, uh, your reaction in general, just because since, like you said, you are coming to this, not familiar with the album, mm-hmm. not familiar with gospel, uh, not necessarily feeling any sort of spiritual connection to this, to, to the material, um, how you felt watching it. My favorite part was watching the reaction of the choir mm-hmm. to be in a choir, um, and obviously embrace music and embrace, um, your church. And then to have Aretha Franklin come and sing with mm-hmm. you um, must have been amazing. It highlights, especially the song Amazing Grace, it's just such an interesting thing where it's like the song is so, like there's a part of it where the, it's like it acknowledges your own um, lack of perfection, right? So much of it kind of focuses on your own fault and you're seeing it like um, it being such a, a, a flag for a community who there's so much of at fault in, in the American black church community is at other people, um, right, a societal fault. Seeing the the sense of community and 
the power that, that music and religion have mm-hmm. to see the, a person with such incredible talent uh, be able to reach people mm-hmm. um, to their to their core is is just I mean I got teary eyed it's 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 really a very I think if, even if you aren't very religious um, but feel a connection to people it's it's hard to deny the power of this experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, with that said, I'm going to deny the power of this experience. Uh, <laughs> I meant this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the movie? Uh, yeah, it was oh, fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so it's funny. So, yeah, you you coming from more of a you know secular perspective on it. Um, you know, you you felt it. You were moved. You teared up. Um, you know, I'm coming from you know more of a faith background, and <laughs> I felt nothing. Really? I'm going to come in with a hot take that I'm not proud of at all. Um, and I think because uh, I've I've always grappled with this album. I'm always like, oh, I should love this. This is the uh, this is the kind of album that I've owned like several times over the years because I'll buy it because I'm like, oh, I should love this album. And I listen to it. I'm just like, oh, I don't love this album. And then I get rid of it. And then I'm just like, oh, I must have been wrong. Let me let me get it again. And I get it again. I'm just like, Oof, still don't like it. Um, and. And so my my hateful hot take is, and this is speaking purely for myself, what I had to face facts with while I was watching Amazing Grace is this. I don't love Aretha Franklin's voice. I don't feel good saying that. But I think what I what 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 I was able to figure out what it is about it that I don't love, or rather what's missing from it that I do love. I love a soul singer voice that is that has edge, that has grit, that has drama, that has darkness, that has pain. And I feel like Aretha's voice is so high and so pure, and it's just pure sunlight. Um, and uh, and and it just doesn't get me emotionally the way that like listening to like Tina Turner, Betty Lavette, um, you know, where there's just like there's this rasp, there's this just like oh. Uh, like there's, you know, it's, it's just like these, these deep, dark soul voices. I think, you know, I think Aretha's voice is, is a magnificent instrument, but like, you know, like she, you know, just shoots up higher and higher and higher. And like, yeah, it's, it's, it's astounding to watch. Um, but it just like, I, I, I loses its emotional connection to me personally, hundred percent subjective take. And I know that I am probably the only person in the world who feels this way. Um, but watching this movie, I just had to be like, what is not working on me here? Like, uh, this should work for me. You know, I love soul music. I love gospel music. I love, you know, like emotional singing. Uh, <laughs> and, um, you know, and yeah, until until Never Grow Old, I was just like, nothing. Like, it was just nothing. Nothing at all. Hmm. Um, and uh, And that is just me. Uh, but yeah, that was, so that was, that was something I had to grapple with while I was watching this. And, uh, and I, and, and it was also interesting to, to look at, to consider Aretha and how she sort of presents herself, um, throughout this movie. Um, and I don't just mean the fact that she, she's, she's sweating profusely by 10 seconds into the very first song. And it's just a puddle from there on out. (laughs) Um, but like she does this interesting thing in this movie where I feel like she is consciously trying to not make it about herself because, Mm -hmm. because it is a gospel performance because she's performing in a church. And so she's, she's, she's presenting herself with humility. Mm -hmm. Um, she is presenting herself with, um, with an absolute lack of ego or vanity. Um, she doesn't, she doesn't. She just feels very interior. I know she she was nervous too. She seemed you know nervous, kind of coming in to do this thing because it was a huge gamble. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know you don't see her. She's not up there working the stage. 
you know, like you see her, she does the first and final song sitting at the piano. Those are both my favorites. Her at the piano and singing at the same time. Maybe it's the Tori in me. Um, <laughs> incidentally, Tori has repeatedly say Amazing Grace as her favorite album of all time. Hmm. Um, but then when, when she's not at the piano, the whole rest of the time, she is standing um, at the uh, at the podium at the lectern. And she is staying there. Pulpit? Pulpit. That's the word. Um, <laughs> and she is basically, yeah, just sort of like testifying from the pulpit. Um, staying, you know, where the preacher normally would, which is a, a powerful visual unto itself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and just sort of just, yeah, testifying with all these songs. And the vast majority of them are very straightforward gospel songs. Although I love that she opens with Holy Holy by Marvin Gaye, because that's that's something that only Aretha had the power to do, to be like, I'm yes, yes, we're here. I'm coming back to the church. I'm here to do this gospel material. But I'm also going to show you um, sort of the false binary of sacred versus secular. Hmm. And I'm going to play you a secular quote unquote song and I'm going to do it like it's sacred. Um, and then she does it again later with you've got no a diggity. friend. Oh, okay. <laughs> she does it again later with, of course, the thong song. Uh, she does it again later um, with uh, Carol King's you've got a friend. Oh, right. Yeah. Uh, uh-huh. Which she turns into you've got a friend in Jesus, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, not the nicest thing to do to a Jewish songwriter song, but <laughs> but you know what are you gonna do? Troll Carol King is like it's fine, it's fine. You go ahead. Uh, so yeah, so I mean, I really appreciate um, those pieces of it as well in terms of the song selection. Hmm. Interesting. Kind of yeah. shows you, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, and and she yeah, she's just very you know her eyes are closed most of the time, and she's just like yeah, she's just having a very interior. It's a very it's like you're watching someone doing something very like personal and private. You know, she's worshiping. Yeah, and it like, se- it seems like what you, you said that her voice is an instrument. It seems as though she is like a vest, like yeah. making herself a vessel instrument. Yeah, absolutely. Then a then a performing performer. Hundred percent. Mm-hmm. She's not performing. You don't see any performance when you watch this. She's not as you would say pulling focus from the big guy upstairs. <laughs> right. Exactly. She is. She's. If anything, she's making herself small. She's making. She's not. She has like no. She's not really manifesting any energy. She really is just channeling this kind of holiness through her voice mm-hmm. and through her performance, even though it's not as we're saying capital P performance. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's 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 like it's like a ninety minute long um, church solo essentially, mm-hmm. um, done by you know one of the greatest vocalists in the history of um, record music. So. What are you going to give this one, Jason? Um, this is for me. It's like a consume plus. Ooh, this is a binge it for me. Okay. This All is right. a binge it. I but think this is... Um, I think this is, this is our de facto pick of the week. Let's go ahead. This let's is, do it. Yeah. It's, it's pick I'll of the week. pick of the week. I yeah. think this is an important moment uh, to see culturally um, as an American. Um, I don't know. I think it's just so easy to, 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 to gain a sense of... Uh, connection with maybe especially if you're not a fan of, of gospel music or, or aren't, aren't aware um, to, to find a connection and, and an entry point to um, like a, you know a whole culture that um, is great <laughs> well said uh-huh. yeah <laughs> I, they appreciate your support I'm all tired I'm, uh, just because I'm sweating so much <laughs> over here Jason movie number three which couldn't be more different uh, Peter Lou. An epic portrayal of the events surrounding the infamous 1819 Peterloo Massacre, where a peaceful pro-democracy rally at St. Peter's Field in Manchester turned into one of the bloodiest and most notorious episodes in British history. Jason, take the wheel. <sighs> okay. Um, so this movie is written and directed by Mike Lee. 
who um, is very well known and celebrated for uh, movies that generally are um, very kind of intimate stories about people, about relationships, about family. He's famous for his improvis- um, his improvisatory um, rehearsal style, where you know he just sits down with his cast for very lengthy periods before they shoot to base- to just sort of rehearse their way into their characters and their connections. And, um, you know, largely improvised scenes throughout his films, like Secrets and Lies, Happy-Go-Lucky. Um, he's done a few um, somewhat larger scale movies before. He did Topsy-Turvy, which was mm-hmm. a Gilbert and Sullivan musical um, at the end of the 90s. Mission Impossible 2. Mission Impossible 2. Uh, <laughs> and, the, and the video for the thong song. So, but it's and that not, is a thread. That's a thread. Um but uh, but yeah, his movies are generally um, "Life Is Sweet" was another one. Vera Drake, so uh, so you know he he knows his way around. He does a lot of sort of like sort of British neo realism, social realism, kitchen sink kind of drama, but also infused with just a lot of humanity. A lot of um, uh, yeah, it's just sort of like he's very humanist filmmaker. Uh, all that is lost in Peterloo. Uh, which is just a very dry, dull, punishing history lesson uh, without any particular character focus or development whatsoever. Uh, it takes place uh, after the uh, Napoleonic Wars, uh, and uh, you know Britain has has triumphed. Uh, but oh, spoiler! <laughs> yes, uh, that's all. That's all in the prologue. And um, and then, but now it's even though you know the war they were successful. Now there's the economy has 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 gotten very dire, and uh, and there is a sort of like gradual uprising of sort of disenfranchised working poor um, Brits, especially in the Manchester area, uh, who do not have um, representation in Parliament, and so uh, so they are gradually organizing to uh, to get that to ha- and this you know leads to them having this um, you know peaceful protest in St. Peter's Field, and then the protest, as the description mentioned, um, quickly devolves into a, a horrific sort of massacre carried out by um, by the powers that be, um, in which I, I believe the death toll wound up being like eighteen people. Um, so, but that all happens in the last like 25 minutes or so of the movie. The mm. two plus hours prior to that. Oh my God. Are just, um, a series of, of scenes of characters sitting in places and sort of very boringly debating, um, what's happening and sort of narrating. It's, it's the opposite of high life. Um, <laughs> in that, um, you know, it, it, it shows you nothing and it tells you everything. Um, although as I mentioned, high life doesn't really show you that much either. Sort of a double negative that one. Uh, it's yeah, it's just a whole lot of very just deathly dry dialogue um, that is not improvised. You know, this is this is scripted, and this shows Mike Lee just shouldn't do scripted. It does not not come to him naturally. Um, Peterloo was meant to be a play on Waterloo. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, the you know the the battle that felled Napoleon. Um, this came on the heels of that, and um, you know, so I mean, I think there's there's stuff that you could pull from this in terms of. Um, you know, in terms of, I think it challenges the thinking of like, oh, yeah, you know, war is always good for the economy. Um, you know, this is an example from history where it was not. Yeah, that's something I'm always thinking about and ready to have that thought challenged. Are you? No. <laughs> then this is perfect for no you. No one's ever thinking that. People always say that. They always say war is good for the economy. I mean, I guess so. But not, I mean, I, there's, a, yeah, I, not like, that's a qu- big question we've been waiting to have answered by a movie. <laughs> Peter Lou does it. Oh, no finally. more calls. We've got an answer. <laughs> 
Uh, and uh, but mainly it's like for a movie that's so dry, um, it just has these really simple caricatures of the different classes involved here. Mm. Like all you know, the ruling classes and the officers are done as such like mustache twirling one dimensional villains. All the workers have like unanimous pained expressions. No characters are developed in any way. Whenever the um, the massacre does unfold, it becomes almost comical at times. You just have like these officers, you know, like jumping down from horses and just like punching bonded women in the face. Like, okay. come here! Ha! <laughs> uh, it just looks like it looks like a parody of a movie about this era. Mm. Um, you know, from a movie that is about the making of such a movie, where they're like, oh no, we've gone a bit Monty Python with this. <laughs> we need to scale this back a bit because it looks ridiculous. <laughs> Um, so yeah, there's, there's, oof. so, you know, it's, it's a history lesson that should have resonance. I mean, it, you know, remind sure. me of, of the, you know, the Kent state shootings, uh, you know, another example from more closer to our histories, um, of a time when protesters were murdered by, mm-hmm. um, you know, of course in the case of Kent state, it was the military. Um, and, uh, so, but yeah, and there's never been anything good made about that. And, no. uh, and this is not a good thing made about, uh, the Peterloo massacre. So it is not great. There's just some periods of history that are so much more, uh, sexy or cinematic than others. <laughs> mm. I feel like it's a story you could tell that's like going on right now. And right. Yeah. It should be, re- it, it should feel great. super resonant. It should feel super resonant. Um, but it's just so it's just so one dimensional mm-hmm. um, in its depiction of everything. And it's so just like uncomplicated. It's very it's very sort of like morally black and white about everything, mm-hmm. which is the most boring way to approach any story, mm-hmm. especially a history lesson. Yeah. Right. Um, if, and if you uh, learn nothing <laughs> from other movies. Cinema history. It give should us, be that that's not give us some complexity. Come on. Um, and, there, and, and, and again, there's just no there's no protagonist. Uh, there's no character development. Like there's just a, a rotating series of like mud splattered faces. Um, none of which really click with you as the audience. Mm. And, um, although I will say this, like it looks and feels like it could have been a documentary, like man, oh, wow. oh man, like in terms of the production design, the set design, like it looks very authentically like early 19th century, uh, Manchester. But once again, whoever wants to see that? It's not like you're like, oh, it's like this, like, you know, sexy 40s or even like um, uh, during the reign of of Louis. Like, I don't know. This seems like the most dull, boring, gross period. Is it pre-industrialization? Oh, God. And and speaking of which, all the peasants look very peasanty. So there's that. I'm just like, I believe it. I I left Cleveland for a reason. Oh, my God. I'm like, that person's going to drop dead tomorrow of, of, of something <laughs> that is now easily preventable, but on the rise again because of anti-vaxxers. Everyone so, has hoof and mouth. Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. So uh, everybody, everybody. I felt like I got just watching it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so yeah, that is, that's Peterloo. Tell me it's a send it back. It is a send it back. Oh, I just cannot think of any circumstance under which I would ever recommend that someone watch this movie. Unless they were like, I have to write this report on Peterloo. And like read the and... Wikipedia page. <laughs> <laughs> Don't watch the movie. It's not uh, worth it. Well, it's rated PG-13 for a sequence of violence and chaos. And we know kids can't see that. Right. Um, Jason, that's it. That's it. Um, thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of The Binge. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. If you can even subscribe on things. Anyway, mm. 
I gotta figure that out. Podcasting is so weird. It really is. Um, Jason is on Twitter at Excess Baggage. I'm Fight Balance. Thank you so much for listening. Bye, guys. Bye-bye. Binging on movies with Rebecca and Jason. You made it to the end. That's amazing. There goes the binge. binge.